we're in Genesis chapter 28. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Genesis chapter 28. And I'm going to read to us today, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So we know that uh, Isaac has had a real significant turn in his life. He's repented of his waywardness. And now there's a, a very personal and sincere blessing over his son Jacob. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. That you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you. That you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And, verse 7 is really, really important, from Esau's perspective, remember, he is a spiritual reprobate that did not value uh, the blessings that God had given. He said, or the, the scripture says, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Badan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. No Marriott there for him to fluff a pillow up. So he used a stone. Check this out. Then he dreamed and behold a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. Really important. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, he says, and he says this to you today, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and stood the stone that he, had put his, that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, that is house of God, but the name of that city had been loosed previously. Then Jacob made a vow 
saying, if God be with me or sense God is with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Check this out. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give you give a tenth to you. And Father, we thank you today God, we thank you that you invite us to a real, sincere, genuine, authentic experience. God, you've not invited us to repetitious religious ritual. Father, you've not invited us to know information or data about you. God, you have invited us to yourself. God, to walk with you, to know you to experience you to the extent that we could say as Jacob that the Lord is my God. And today, Father, we pray that you would, for those of us who have yet to take that step of faith and to begin that journey, we pray today would be their day. God, the first steps of repentance and faith and obedience would be taken. And God, for those of us who've walked with you for some time, God, we pray today that you would renew us in our walk with you. God, that we would not expect you to conform to us, but that we would conform to you. And so, Lord, we pray, speak to your church today, in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> the word experience comes from a 13th century Latin word, experientia, which means a trial, a proof, or an experiment um, it means knowledge gained by repeated trials. In fact, the word is a compound word. And the first word of the compound word is ex, which means out of. And the second word is peritus, which means tested. It means to try. Uh, it also means to risk. So when we talk about experience, we're talking about that which comes out of testing or repeated trial or rep repeated use of something. You know, if we're talking about somebody who is experienced in a particular thing, what we're saying is they have a firm grasp or understanding of something because of repeated testing, repeated trying. They've used that thing or engaged that thing or involved themselves in that thing so often, so regularly that they have a deep grasp of it or a deep understanding of it. They're experienced in that thing. And I say all of that today to say to you that, and this is an amazing thing to consider, it is God's intention based on his eternal purpose for you to experience him. So, so let me just say, like with, with all of that in mind, that, that the word experience means that which comes out of repeated testing or trying, stepping outside of the box and being willing to take a risk. You know, the amazing thing to me today is this, that God wants you, it's his eternal purpose that you would experience him. Now, the, Im the immediate response for you should be something like, what? Are, are you kidding me? Like, who am I? Let me, let me flip this around because I know some of you, right? <laughs> who are you? Who are you? Like, there should be, it should be astounding, church. It should be amazing that God invites us into this personal experience, you know, this divine, divine opportunity. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would consider him? God, we are just dust 
We are just dust. And what do you invite us to? You invite us to real living experience. He is the living God. You know, um, it is true. He is the God who was. But my concern to sometimes is this, that, you know, we just put God in that past framework. He is the God who was. We know him as the God who was. We know historical aspects and elements about this God. There are things that we can relay about the life of Christ from, a, from a, the perspective of the past that we can acknowledge. And we can talk about how we know the God who was. But he is not just the God who was. He is the God who is. And he is the God who is to come. And, and, and he, he is the living God that permeates time itself. He is infused in time in an absolutely perfect way. You know, God is not bound in our time-space continuum. He is the living God who offers you the opportunity to experience him. And you know, the scripture is clear about this. The Bible says, let me just give you some some evidence of this. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9, verse 26, God speaking, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that they shall be called the sons and daughters of the living God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Not just the God who was, but the God who is, and the God who is to come. And Paul said this to Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy 3.15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So when we talk about experiencing God, we are talking about learning him. We are talking about learning his character, learning his ways, learning his plans, learning his faithfulness, learning what pleases him, what displeases him. And the truth is this, of all that there is to experience in life, there is nothing that matches experiencing God. Can you say amen to that today? You know, you know as a Christian, if, if you've walked with God, if you've sincerely experienced him, you know that this is true, that nothing that the world had fashioned or formed or shaped ever supplied to you what the eternal living God is supplying to you right now. And when we're talking about experiencing God, we're not talking just about knowing things about him, right? I, I think, you know, you hear people talk about the beauty of Southern California beaches probably all the time. And the truth is this, if you've never been there, you can know a lot about them. You can watch videos of, you know, the waves crashing on the beaches of Southern California. You can study maps. You can listen to other people's experiences. You can check out people's posts on Instagram, but it's not until you put your feet in the warm sand, right? I mean, you've, you've done all of the gathering of the data, but that does not compare to the personal experience where you match that with your own like real existential opportunity, your feet in the warmth of the sand, you tasting the saltiness of the ocean water, you being absorbed in the sunset. Man, you know what it's like if you've stood there on the edge of the Pacific 
with the waves lapping at your toes, as you watch that blazing ball of fire sink below the horizon, you get absorbed in this amazing moment where God himself is speaking through general creation, declaring to you, I love you. I am the maker. I am almighty God. I fashioned all of these things, and not just these things, but you, and you are made for me. Like, you get wrapped up in that moment. And there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it because there's a difference between knowing something about it and experiencing it. And today, the reality is this. There are some of us sitting in these seats or watching online, and the truth is we know things about God. We have a theological sketch in our mind, things that we've learned from what others have said. We've learned from teachings. Maybe we've read the Bible ourselves. And we have this theological sketch that we've compiled ourselves. We have data in our mind about who God is. Maybe we've become proficient in religious practice. We know what the duty of a Christian is. We know what a worship service is like. And man, we can be proficient. We can be masters in religious practice. But God isn't calling you to, to just have a theological sketch of him. God isn't just calling you to be proficient or a master in religious experience. God is calling to you to taste and to see that he is good. That is what the word of God beckons you to, right? To, to sincerely taste. You know, when you walk in the... When you walk into the worship center, because that's what this is, it's a place, it's one of the many places, it's not the only place. This is not the only place you worship God. You know that, right? This is not like, this is not some special place because there's, there's a name on it that says Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas, and so it's supremely consecrated in some way, you know, not denying the reality that God blesses us beautifully with his presence. Man, thank you, God, for that. But I'm saying to you, this is not the only place that you, you worship God. And, and, and yet we call it the worship center. And over the doors that lead you into the worship center, we have put the words. Do you know what they are? What does it say? Right. Okay. So you guys have walked in here a hundred times. You don't even know what's written over the doors. That's a problem. That's a problem. Or maybe it's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Or maybe it's like, well, that's weird. Why, why that? Why, why experience Jesus? Uh, because, because that's what existence and life is about. That's what existence and life is about. And I distinguish between those two things because they are different. The purpose of your existence is to experience the Father through the Son. That is the purpose of your experience or your existence. And life itself, like if you're going to truly suck the marrow out of life, so that you get everything that God has intended for you to experience out of this life that he's blessed you with. You'll only get that through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you come into this place, when you come through those doors, we don't want you experiencing the wisdom of man. We don't want you just to experience the, the philosophy of a ministry. We don't want you just to be learning things about God so you've got in your mind this theological sketch, this data that you've collected in your mind. We don't want you to be in a place where you've just mastered religious ritual so somehow you can walk out of here feeling as though you've done your religious duty and justified, justified your conscience and, and yet really missed the most important thing of it all. Because all of those things are pointing to a person and his name is Jesus. 
not to a denomination, not to the name of a church, certainly not to any name of any pastor or leader here. We want you to experience the Lord Jesus Christ when you are present in this place so that when you leave, you can say, I met him. I met him. I met him in that place. He spoke to me. He spoke to me. He revealed things about me that only he could have known. And my life has been changed because of it. You know, today we're going to learn a couple of things about experiencing God through Jacob's experience of God. Uh, and this, for, for you students of the word, you know this probably already, but this is the first of seven revelations, personal revelations that God gives to Jacob. And this, this is, they're all significant, don't get me wrong, but this really is the beginning of his journey with the Lord. And maybe today, maybe today there are some of you who have yet to take that step of faith and really have a living relationship with God through Jesus, his son. Maybe today is going to be the day that you begin that journey and you take those initial steps of faith. Maybe for some of us, we've walked for some time with the Lord. But you know, the, the truth is this, that it's very easy for us to become old wineskins. It's very easy for us to have a vibrant uh, living relationship with God at some point, And then just you know, by nature, we're, we're spiritually undisciplined. By nature, we are spiritually lazy creatures. That's just the reality. And we have to fight. There's this constant tension in our lives to keep ourselves by the power of God and by his grace in a place where our experience of him is real and living and vibrant. And I'm just saying today, maybe for you, there's just going to be a little rebirth of that in your life. Like the worship team was leading us today, just like Lazarus. Right, just like Lazarus. But you don't just have a one time, just like Lazarus experience in your journey with God. There are times throughout your journey with God where he will rebirth you again. I'm not saying that you get saved again to get saved again to get saved again. You're a child of God. But there's a renewing that needs to happen in our life. Just check a couple of things out today. The first is this in verse 7. And like I said... Um, this is what Esau sees. Esau, of course, like I said, was a, a spiritual reprobate. He did not value the blessings that God had given to him to the extent where he was willing to, to just hand them away in one instance for a bowl of lentil soup. But this was his observation, and this was the truth, verse 7, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. The first thing that we see in Jacob's journey was observed by somebody else. Nevertheless, it was true. His experience with God began when he took initial steps of obedience. His experience of God began as he took initial steps of obedience. And so remember, there's this situation that's happened in Jacob's life, and and, you know, God was gracious in the midst of all of the family turmoil and toxicity and dysfunction. God was gracious as Isaac was spiritually wayward and as Rebecca was taking matters, matters into her own hands, even like doing things that, that were sin in the eyes of God. And while God was gracious in all of that, he did not endorse the tactics that were employed. And yet... And yet he moved in such a way that Isaac was awakened to his waywardness and has an authentic moment of directing and blessing his son Jacob. And he gives him a charge. And, you know, this charge that was coming from Isaac was not just a, 
was not just, it didn't find its root or source in him. This was something that Abraham had charged his servant with because Isaac needed to have a wife that was from the family of Abraham. And this was also a charge that God had given to Abraham. So what I'm saying to you today is, as Jacob was being obedient to the direction of to the direction of his father and mother, that command ultimately had come from God. So his step of obedience was not just to humans, it was divine in essence. If you're going to experience God, it begins with steps of obedience. I said to you a couple of weeks ago, C.S. Lewis once said this, so good, obedience is the key that opens every door. Obedience is the key that opens every door. You know, today... There may, be, there may be a stunted experience of God in your life. And maybe for you, you're like, man, God, what is this all about? What is this all about? I see so many other people experiencing you in such a profound and deep way. And I would say to you sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that stunted experience of God is a re- result of our resisting him. You know, God is, it's like God's got these bands of love that are tied around our heart, right? And he's pulling us. This is what God is always doing. Even when you're on the run, he's doing this. He's pulling us to himself. And the thing is, like, we're moving in the other direction. Like, we're fighting against God. It's almost as if it's a tug of war. And God is, God is calling. He's, he's saying, come to me. Come to me. Come and experience me. I've got all of this for you. And we're just so stubborn sometimes. We're so resistant. And then listen, we're so self-deceived, somehow we think that all of that resisting is God's fault. Like we've got this crazy ability to take our own sinfulness and flip it around and blame it on God. Today, for some of us, the truth is this, the, the, the stunted experience of God in our life is a function of our disobedience and what we need to do is we need to turn around, stop resisting and yield Yield to the Lord. Jacob had to take steps of obedience. He had to take his own steps of obedience. You, now listen, some of you scholars of the Bible might say, well, you know, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, they had a very unique work of God in their family. And, and you know, there was a, a blessed lineage, there was a promised legacy and while all of that is true, it doesn't deny the reality that Abraham couldn't, or excuse me, Jacob could not rely on his grandfather's experience of God. And Jacob couldn't rely on his mom and dad's experience with God. Jacob had to have his own experience with God. You know, he, he might have been able to look as messed up as his family was. And let me just tell you, there is no perfect family, okay? So just when you think yours is as bad as it possibly gets, <laughs> we all have issues. But, but I'm saying to you, Jacob could have been in a place where it's like, well, you know, I'm all right because it's kind of a hand-me-down thing. My mom and dad have a relationship with God. I've grown up in this, this household of faith. I've grown up in this household of faith. There was a unique work of God in my grandfather's life, and there was this calling. And so, so really, you know, like, I'm okay because everybody else had this relationship. And, you know, that's not the way that it works. 
You don't just get to be in a place where you're okay with God because your spouse has a vibrant living relationship with God. I hear this sometimes. You know, you be talking with somebody and you're talking about life and, and you're talking about vocation and work and, and hobbies and then you get to the issue of faith and, you know, sometimes, I'm not picking on guys today, but invariably it's a husband and the husband says something like, well, you know, that's really my wife's department. You know, you're talking about God. You're talking about, about the, the spiritual nature of the household. You're talking about walking in God's calling and Christ being the center. And, and invariably, some guy, you know, will just be like, yeah, well, you know, I kind of leave that up to my wife. She's the spiritual one. She's the spiritual one. And sometimes the thinking goes like this. I'm okay because she's okay. I'm, I'm in a good spot. Like, I'm in a good spot because, because my wife has this real deep, close connection with God. Somehow that transfers over to me. Now, let me just tell you, that's not how it works. <laughs> that is not how it works. Um, you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb, have you heard about that before? It's coming. It's coming really soon. And the marriage supper of the Lamb is when all of the children of God will be gathered Together with Christ at the center in heaven and there will be this huge celebration, this massive celebration. And, uh, and I can tell you it's coming soon because uh, there are wars and rumors of wars, right? Don't, don't forget to pray for Ukraine, all right, and especially the churches there. There are wars and there are rumors of wars. There are pestilences, a.k.a. COVID-19. <laughs> There are earthquakes in various places, and Jesus said, man, these are the beginnings of the beginning of sorrows. All of these are birth pains. When you see these things, right, there will be false prophets and false Christ declaring themselves to speak on my behalf or to even be me, right? When you see these things, know. And so I'm saying to you that the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming soon, and the children of God will be gathered together in white robes, will be wearing white robes, that will be given to us by the Lord himself because they are robes of righteousness that he won through his sacrifice on the, Christ, on the, on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's good. But that's not really my point. My, 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 my point is this. There's no hand-me-downs. There's no hand-me-downs. There's no second-hand store in heaven. Like, when you get there, it's like, oh, man, I didn't come dressed for the party. Like, can, can I buy some robes that somebody else wore? No, that's not how it works. You have to have your own relationship with God. And you know what? God will allow, God will cause even circumstances in your life to push you towards him. He will do it. Like, God did not endorse the tactics that were employed by Rebecca. Uh, he for sure did not endorse the waywardness of Isaac, but he was good to use it in Jacob's life. He was good to use that adversity and difficulty to dislodge Jacob from a condition of disbelief. And you know, God will do the same thing for you. God will take circumstances in your life that you think are just coincidences or maybe that the world is against you. They're so uncomfortable. We'll talk about how uncomfortable this was for Jacob. But they're so uncomfortable, you're thinking, man, how is it that I have to walk through this and yet all of this, all of that 
is the whisper of God saying to you, come to me. Come to me. I'm going to use the adversity to dislodge you from your disbelief. You've been living in a condition that's been apart from me. And I have a jealous love for you. And so I'm going to send you straight into the winds of the storm so that you are dislodged from this place of comfort and apathy and spiritual laziness that you've created for yourself because I'm not there. I'm not there. And so I'm going to take you out of that place. And, and when God does that, we can either fight against it, we can resist it, or we can yield to it and start taking steps of obedience. The second thing today is in verses 12 to 15. The second thing, if you're taking notes concerning really uh, an authentic experience of God is this. Experiencing God is an invitation that is real and personal. Experiencing God is an invitation that is real and personal. Now, let me, let me just say this, okay, because this isn't all delineated in the story. But if you just, if you just pause and you think about what's going on, you'll, you'll see that this was not an easy situation for Jacob. It just wasn't easy. He was in the promised land, living in this oasis. He was called to go to Haran, which was another oasis. But the journey was over the blazing hot sands of the desert, Right? We're familiar with what that's like because this is, this is where we live. It wasn't as if Jacob you know, got in his Tesla <laughs> and, and you know, programmed the location in and then had all the supercharging points all mapped out. It wasn't as if God gave him a couple bucks and said, hey, listen, stop at a couple Starbucks, you know, go to Chipotle, get yourself, get yourself some lunch, and you know, we'll, we'll make a good time out of this. It's not that there was a residence in along the way. Uh, there was none of that. Think about what Jacob had to endure. He left the safety of his home. He left the safety of his relationships. He literally, the Bible gives no indication that there was an entourage of people that went with Jacob. He was all alone on this journey. I want you to think about who he was personally. His constitution left him quaking because he was a gentle, tender, soft individual. I think something like this for Esau would have been like, man, awesome, an adventure into the wild. This is what I'm made for. But Jacob was the exact opposite. He was journeying into, the, into a place that was totally unknown to him and absolutely uncomfortable. He could have never been more vulnerable. He, there was no protection, right? He didn't have the opportunity to stop at a hotel and fluff up a pillow. Like, literally, he had to take a stone and place it on the ground to lay his head onto. This was, this was not easy, this wasn't his place of comfort. This was not his comfort zone. But, but yet, that was the place that God had chosen to meet him. That was the place that God had chosen to meet him. You know, some of us today, we've been called out of our comfort zone. Some of us have been called to a place of loneliness. Some of us have, have, have been called into something that is the exact opposite of what we perceive, our personality or our, our character traits to be aligned with. And yet in all of that calling, in all of that discomfort, in all of God breaking down the comfort zones that we create for ourselves, God is present in that place and he wants, in the rawness of it, listen, in the rawness of it, 
And I have to say it like this because you know what? Sometimes we become spiritually desensitized by the comfortable world we've created for ourselves. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we create this nice little comfort zone and we mitigate the pain. And I'm not saying there's not some valuable pragmatism to that. I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, listen, to really experience God, make your life as miserable as possible. I'm not, I'm not saying that today, okay? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is sometimes we can create for ourselves an environment that insulates us. It insulates us. You know, for me, it's like, God, thank you for all that you have done and for how much you've blessed us. I don't want to be in a place. I know, I know my heart. I don't want to be in a place where I allow these things to desensitize me because sometimes it's in the place of you know give us this day our daily bread that we really experience him you know we wouldn't we wouldn't ask for that we wouldn't ask for that but Rachel and I have experienced this it's not like it's not like we're praying hey God strip strip it all away so I have nothing so I can trust in you very very few people are praying that but I can tell you for us I mean, we're blessed in times of, of abundance, and we're blessed in times where we have been almost indigent as church planters. You know, in that place where literally it was, God, you know what? Uh, we don't know. We don't know how it's going to happen today. We don't know how we're going to feed our kids. But God, we're going to pray and we're going to ask, and you know what? It's in that place where God does such a, a sweet miracle. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to embrace it. Look, lean into that. Lean into that moment because God has something special for you. What did God have for Jacob? Well, God speaks to Jacob in two different ways. God gives Jacob a dream. And as we read the story, what we discover is that he, in his dream, sees this ladder that is, you know, it's rooted on earth, but it goes all, it reaches all the way up to heaven. In fact, the, the wording is really important. It says that its top reached to heaven. And at the top of that ladder was the Lord God, was the Father. And so what we have is this, we have this ladder connecting heaven and earth. And it was a beautiful dream that God had given to Jacob. Later on, we're going to see that Jacob saw this as the gateway to heaven, an interchange between God and himself. He's going to see this as heaven being opened to him and access being given to him. But, you know... I appreciate how God ministers so personally to Jacob. He gives him a picture of the promise. That's what this is. It's a picture of the promise. You know, I think Jacob, like if we were to put Jacob's personality in modern vernacular, Jacob would be a creative. He was a creative. He was a, a gentle, tender, insightful, very, very capable, gifted young man. And what does God do? God brings the promise to him. I mean, he's going to declare it the way he did to Abraham in, in, later on. But what he gives to Jacob is this vivid vision. He speaks to Jacob in a way that Jacob would understand. So creative. And the vision, the picture is, is the Messiah, right? That's, that was the promise, right? In you all in your seed, God said to Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So not just that you're going to have lots of descendants, not that I'm just giving you a land, but through you, I'm bringing my Redeemer. Through you, I'm bringing my Messiah. Listen, you'll get this, you'll get this. Through you, I'm bringing the one who can bridge the distance between heaven and earth. 
right? That's what he's saying here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring the one through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. I'm going to bring the one who is able to place his holy hand on unholy man and to place his hand on an, on an absolutely righteous, holy God. And that's, you say, well, what is the latter? The latter is Messiah. The latter is Christ. You say, what's your biblical evidence? I say, thanks for asking because you should ask that. And I say, John chapter 1, verse 51. When Nathanael had come and Jesus had said to him, hey, you know, before you came here, I saw you under the tree. And he disclosed something that only God could have known. And so the response was, man, this is Messiah. And Jesus' response was, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Right? So what does Jesus do? He ties his presence the fulfillment of the promise all the way back to this vision or this dream that Jacob had had. And he interprets himself as the latter. Angels of God ascending and descending, not just on a ladder, but on the Son of Man, the one who bridges the gap, the one who is the only one who's able to connect us to the Father, like there is this eternal chasm between ourselves and God. And what did God do? He sent the Son. He sent the Son. He sent the only begotten Son. Jesus is not just a way to follow. Jesus is not just a truth in the pantheon of many other truths. Jesus is not just a life or a lifestyle for us to emulate. He is, he is the way. He is the truth, and he is the life. And he is the only one. He's the only one who can reach all the way up to heaven. Listen, there's no ladder of your own making that's going to that's gonna ascend so high that you can stand in the presence of God. You know, he's the only one who's, whose ladder reaches to the very top. You know, you might think, well, hey, it's, it's my morality and there's changes that I've made in my life and I've tried to get things right and I'm coming to church now. I'm coming to church now. That's a good thing, all right? I'm coming to church now and, and God surely sees that. And I put my kids in a Christian school. I've made some real changes. Hey, that's good that you've made some real changes. Those real changes, that ladder does not reach to heaven. It just doesn't reach to heaven. It's going to come up short. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I come every Sunday. And there are a lot of people in this church that I know don't come every Sunday. And not only do I come every Sunday, but you just shifted to Thursday night. I'm coming to Thursday night too. And not only that, Pastor, but you know what? I give pretty consistently of, of my resources to the kingdom. That has to count for something. Well, you know what? <laughs> it, it, doesn't earn you, it doesn't earn you a way into the presence of God. Hey, your religious ritualism, your moral transformation that's been self-generated by your own strength is as filthy rags, the Bible says, before the Lord. No, you need, you need someone. You say, man, that's really offensive. You must have a really low view of humanity. No, I have a realistic perspective because it comes from the Bible, not a, the secular world around us. You know, there's only one ladder that reaches all the way to the top. And there's only one person who is worthy of your trust and faith, and his name is Jesus. 
And, and let me just say, there's no real experience of God the Father without a personal relationship with his son. So he gives this dream, it's contextualized for his character, his, his personality, but then he personalizes the promise. He reiterates, God does, the promise to Jacob that he gave to Abraham and Isaac, but then he also says this, behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now let me just say, when you get to the end of that beautiful personal statement, I mean, it's just amazing what God says to him. It's so absolutely personal. When you get to the end and he says, I won't leave you until I've done what I promised you, some of you are like, well, that's kind of rough, man. It's like God's going to do it and then just abandon Jacob. No, that's not what it means. The, the, the idiom here is, I will always be faithful to you. I will always be faithful to you. There is not a time in your life where I will not be faithful and, and I'm, it's not that I've just called your grandfather. It's not that I've just called your father. I've called you. I want a relationship with you. Listen, this, let me just say to you, you know, this, this was so profound to me. Some of you know my personal story, you know, and I'm not going to go into it uh, today in depth. But when I went to college at UC Irvine, all I wanted to do was party and, you know, when I got to my dorm, I was waiting for the, my dorm mate, and, um, and lo and behold, this person rolls in, and I was like, oh, this is great, it's party time, you know, because I put on the application all the different things that I like to do. I was very specific about the beer I like to drink and other stuff. I don't even want to tell you what I, and I'm like, hey, I just want to be honest. I just want to be honest so they match me with the right person, because I don't want to get some loser, right? And so what happens is, um, you know, I, I meet my roommate, and he's a born-again Christian. He's a born-again Christian. <laughs> I'm telling you. And I was just with him uh, to, just for the last couple days. And we were, like, we were reminiscing on this. Because, because I was like, dude, <laughs> I, was, I was so mad. I was so mad. I'm like, you... You, this is not happening to me. This is not happening to me. I've waited for this moment, and I've got this total Christian loser for a roommate. And then, you know what? After I got saved, I was like, man, what did that look like from his perspective? I'm sure he was thinking, God, this is not happening to me. God, this is, this is not happening to me. Because I was a lunatic, all right? No, I was a lunatic. I was out of control. And what this guy did, and I told, I told John this. I said, you demonstrated an authentic, an authentic relationship with Jesus. And when I hit rock bottom, when I got thrown in jail for assaulting a police officer, right, that was my rock bottom, there was, there was an awakening. I knew where to turn because someone had lived out their personal relationship. Look, if John had just been a person who was a master in religious practice, if John was a person who had a, a theological sketch of who God was but did not, did not know him personally, there would have been no value. No value. In fact, I probably would have easily discarded the concept of Christianity because there would have been no evidence of real life transformation. But God had pulled him from the same pit that God was just about to pull me from. God calls you. God calls you, and you know what? God is calling you right now. What is it going to take for you to say yes to God? What, what is it going to take? Because I'll tell you right now, God's been working in your life. 
God has been customizing situations and circumstances because he is the omniscient, omnipresent, almighty God. And what may look to you as just coincidence or circumstance is in fact the very hand of God himself pulling you with bands of love, saying to you, come to me. Come to me. I don't want your religious ritual. I want your heart. I want you. And you know what you're going to get in return? You're going to get me in return. So listen, the third thing here today is this. God's invitation. I say all of that to you to say this. God's invitation to experience him requires a response. It requires a response. You know, I was thinking about this during the first service. Actually, during the first teaching. Because I didn't think about it before. But, what, but what, what if, what if the story ended in verse 15? What if it was like there was all this download of God and this working of God in Jacob's life, and then that was it, straight into chapter 29. And there was no expression in the canon of Scripture of Jacob's personal response to all that God had done. What if it just fell off a cliff? Look, what if it just fell off a cliff? You, you know yourself, as I say those words, you're like, man, the story wouldn't be the same, would it? It would lose something. And yet that happens every single Sunday morning. It happens every time God is speaking to us and we turn away from what he has to say to our hearts. You know, Jake, Jacob in this story did not just turn a, a deaf ear to God. He did not just ignore what it was that God was doing. He didn't continue to run in the other direction. There was a response because there was an awakening that happened in his life. And I think it's encapsulated by the statement that he makes. How awesome is this place? How awesome is this place? This is the very house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You know, an awareness was being birthed in his life. Now, let me just tell you, it was, it was an immature response. I mean, let me be fair. It was good. It was genuine. It was sincere. There are elements that are absolutely the way that we should respond as well. And there are things that he says are just an ex- expression of immaturity, right? As if, as if Bethel is the only place that God was as if that place was the only place as if there was one single consecrated place to experience the Lord and this of course was just conveyed in his own immaturity because it isn't the place it can't be the place because God wasn't just there God is everywhere God is everywhere And when you mature and grow in your faith, you begin to have a developed understanding of the omnipresence of God. As a mature Christian, you know it's not the church building, right? As a mature Christian, you know, and I'm not saying there's not just a, a, a gracious provision of blessing that God grants us. And he does, because where two or more are gathered, Jesus said, he is there right in the midst in a very special way. But it is not as if this place is holier than any other place. You know, you're mature enough to know that while God is gracious to use instruments, to use human beings in your life to lead you spiritually, it is not, it's not them. It's not them. Fundamentally, fundamentally, it is God working through their lives. It is not as if they're more special in some significant way than you are or they have something that you don't have. You would never be in a place where you would bow your knee to a human leader as if they're worthy to receive the worship that only God is worthy to receive. You would never do that. 
You would never do that. You know, it's not as if we're immature enough to think that it's the methods of ministry that we employ. Almost to the extent where we, like if we were to call this our church home, which I think most of us do, but almost as if we would begin to create some hierarchy between the way we do things and the way other churches do things and put ourselves on the top rung of the ladder because there's only one ladder between humanity and God. And it, listen, it's not the institution of the church. It is not the methods that the church employs. It is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. So I'm saying, I'm saying to you today, nostalgia should never become idolatry. Nostalgia should never become idolatry. I'm thankful for how God moved in my life in various places, but I don't worship those places. I don't worship those methods, and I certainly don't worship those individuals. Because mature Christians learn to live in the presence of God at all times. At all times. So I'm saying to you today, I'm saying to you today, this place is as consecrated as your home is. You say, well, I go to church to worship. Well, you know what? You can worship at your home. You say, well, God's not there like he is at church. I say, well, why is that the case? Haven't you read your Bible lately? Don't you know that God is omnipresent? That God is dwelling in your house? That God is dwelling in your house? You're like, okay, pastor, I can concede that. You know, I can worship at home. And I say to you, well, you, you can worship at work too. You can worship at work too. You're like, well, wait a minute. No pastor has come and anointed it with water and, and prayed over it. And I say, it's consecrated not because the pastor's prayed over it, but because the presence of God dwells there. You're like, you don't know where I work. You don't know where I work. And I say, I don't have to know where you work because I know the God that I serve. And I know what David said in Psalm 139, whether he took the wings of the morning and ascended to the uttermost parts or whether he went down to the very depths of Sheol, he said, you are there. And some of you are working in the depths of Sheol. I know that. But he's present there. He's present there. Listen, listen, this is what happens when we make this false dichotomy as if God is more present here than he is there. Our behavior follows that. Our behavior follows that. Pretty soon we find ourselves functioning spiritually in one place and unspiritually in another place. We roll into this place and we've got the bumper sticker on our car. We got our radio tuned to the right station. We've got our Christian shirt on, right? We've got our cross hanging on the outside because this is a spiritually consecrated place and we're probably gonna get a high five and an amen because of it. And then, and then you know, we go to that place. We go to that place and we're like, well, God isn't really here. So, you know, my radio station's gonna change. My shirt's gonna change. I'm gonna, t I'm gonna tuck the cross in on the inside. Look, you know what I'm saying. I'm gonna change the way that I speak I'm going to change the way that I speak because in our minds, what's happening is we're forgetting that God is present in that place. God is present in that place. And, and when, we, when we, listen, when we anchor ourselves to that reality, all of a sudden, what matters most is the presence of God and not what everything else is happening, not what everything else is going on. You know what I'm saying. So he marked the moment. He marked the moment by making a memorial and making a vow. And this is, how, this is how Jacob did it. He took the stone, he set it up as a pillar, he anointed it with oil, and he renamed it. All right? And, and this signifies the reality that Jacob's thinking and Jacob's seeing is starting to change. This is what's happening. There's a process. All of a sudden, and this is good, all of a sudden he's seeing things differently. 
the way that he thinks, the way that he sees. Hey, hey, you know what? God is moving. I see the hand of God around me, right? I'm, I'm starting to change the way that I think about things. When you experience God, it will change the way you think and it will change your perception. It will change the way you think about people, right? It better, it better, because, you know, when you come in contact with the holy God through faith in the cross of Christ, this is what you recognize. You recognize that you are a worm. You are a worm. You are dust. You are unworthy. But God has been gracious. And so instead of having that attitude of judgmentalism, where you see everybody else through this lofty, uh, self-righteous perspective, as if you brought something to the table that makes you better than other people, no, that's, that's not what the cross of Christ conveys. When you come to the cross, you know that you are absolutely unworthy. You are nothing better than a worm, and you're living amongst other worms. And every worm needs the Lord. Let me just tell you that today. You see people differently. You see them as objects of the Father's love. Listen, you see your resources differently. This was what Jacob said. He's like, well, God, since you promised and since you've blessed, the truth is this, I don't have anything right now except this rock that I'm just going to dedicate to you. But as you bless me, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything because God, what I see now is that everything that I have has come from you. Everything that I have has come from you. There is not a single thing that I have in my life that hasn't come from you that isn't going to be used through you and ultimately is not going to be given back up in worship to you. That's what happens to a heart that's experienced the Lord. A heart that really experiences God knows that they're not just walking through random circumstances or coincidences. The heart that really knows that God is omnipresent in all of his ways and he is omnisciently and faithfully working in every detail knows, knows that every circumstance has been first filtered through the loving hand of the Father. That God, in fact, is in control. That God is on his throne. That God has a plan and a purpose for every blessing and also every difficulty. For every fulfilled promise and for every experience of pain that we go through, that we go through in our lives. That God ultimately is behind all of that, working all things together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. The life that's really experienced him. The life that's walking in that place understands on a daily basis, you know what, God, I'm, I'm yielding myself to those things that you bring into my life. I'm going to recognize that they're from you, and I'm going to walk in them in a way that brings you glory. He not, only, he not only has this shift of thinking, but he makes a vow. And I just want to end with this today, and I'm, I'm grateful for your patience. But he makes this vow. And his vow uh, essentially is communicating that he is adjusting his life according to the revelation of God. Like there's an adjustment. I'm, I'm making a vow. I'm making a change. I'm turning my life. God, in other words, listen, he's not saying, God, I'm expecting you to adjust yourself to me. This is really, really important. He's saying, God, I'm adjusting myself to you. And, and we know that he's saying that because he says, the Lord shall be my God. The Lord shall be my God. You know, he is the one. He is the one. It's not just in this life now, it's not just that I have him, but he has me. And why is it important to say that? Because listen, we live in a Christian culture that has flipped the script. We flipped the script. And you know what we do? We shape a God after our own image. We pulled the hammer, we pulled the chisel out, and we have formed a God 
in our thinking that could, should conform himself to us. And we want a God. We want a God that's going to pacify us in, in our compromise. We want a, a God who's going to condone a lifestyle that falls short of deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Like, that's the type of Christianity that's being conveyed today. And, and oftentimes, it's rarely preached. Hey, listen, it's not that God is conforming himself to you. You bet he loves you. You bet he's gracious. But, but guess what? He's God and you're not. He's God and you're not. Like, what's happened here in this experience of God is that he has condescended through the giving of his son to bring us to a place where we align ourselves to him. Where we say, you know what, God, I'm not living for myself any longer. God, I am living for you. And those things in my life that displease you or that are not in alignment, God, I'm, I'm, I'm turning. If there's anything I'm going to turn my back on, it's going to be on those things, God, so that I can keep my face pointed towards you. You know, all of this means that the revelation of God demands a choice. It demands a real decision. You know, I think how many Sundays go by, Sunday after Sunday, where we have people sitting and listening and yet remain in a place of, of indecision. They hear the truth over and over and over again, and yet they remain undecided. And it's not as if God hasn't spoken. God has, but you have been re resistant and reluctant. You've been reluctant to align yourself to the Lord. And you know, in all of that, you're like, well, listen, I'm just kind of in this middle ground. You know, it's not that I'm altogether for and I'm not altogether against. And I would say to you, no response is a response of no. No response of, is a response of no. When, when, you, when you decide to not decide, you've said no to God. That, that's just the truth. It's just the truth. And so when God brings that revelation and you, you guys know only the Holy Spirit can do it. I'm not God. I'm not here to play Holy Spirit in your life. Only God can take the, the words of Scripture and bring real application in a life-transforming way in your life. No man can do that. But when the Spirit of God is gracious enough in this context to speak to us in such a way where we know in our hearts, maybe everyone else doesn't know how much we know, but we know that God has spoken to us. When he takes the loving time to speak to us, what is required is a response of obedience. God help us. You know, I, I shared this the, the other week. It might have been last week. But I was thinking about this. You know, the church at Laodicea had pushed Jesus out. He was on the outside. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What was he? What? Why is he standing at the door and knocking? Because the church had pushed him out. There was, no, there was no space. There was no yielding. They'd become spiritually desensitized to God. And the only way back was through repentance. And so he says, he says, as many as I love, I chasten, therefore be zealous. Be zealous. When the revelation is, is given, don't disregard it. Don't discount it. Don't delete it. Don't be, you need to be that heart that's composed of good soil as the seed is planting this transformation. Listen, Job said these words. I just want to close with them today. As, as, yeah, Job. As we wrap this up, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you.
may God bless us with that this week in Jesus' name. Father, thank you. We love you, God, and we pray for your mercies in this place, God, your mercies in our lives. Father, who are we that you would even condescend? God, who are we with all of our struggles and all of our failures? And yet, God, your love, there is nothing like your love. And we pray today that that truly, Father, your love would permeate every heart. For every wall that's been built up, we pray your love would tear those walls down brick by brick. We pray, God, for, for every callous that is, that is hindering a person from really experiencing the sweetness and the sharpness of your word. We pray today, God, that, that the callous would be torn away. And in that rawness, there would be a renewed experience of you. And Father, the truth is this, we can be so self-deceived, we, we can think we're in the right spot when we're not. And so help us. God, help us. If it means that you need to pull us out of our self-imposed comfort zone because it's now become a stumbling block to us, God, we pray you would. Today, as we're just in this moment of prayer, we're going to just wrap up the service in a similar way that we normally do, just a little different this morning. Worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship, and today I'm just going to invite you to stand right where you're sitting today. If maybe today you need to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, your ladder, uh, the ladder of your own making will never reach to heaven, and so you need to trust in Jesus, and that's your step today. He's been tugging on your heart. You've been saying no. Stop saying no and start saying yes. Today, maybe, maybe there's a thing that God has been calling you to. Maybe there's a thing that God's been calling you to step away from. Maybe today as a Christian, you know that you've compartmentalized the presence of God to a location. And, and today God is... God is expanding your experience. Today, I want to lead you just in a very simple prayer as we're all standing. If this is you, this is the work of God in your life, and he's going to hear your prayer, and he's going to do an amazing and mighty work. And there, as you choose to respond, there's there is going to be real evidence of the living God at work in your life. And not only will that bless you, but it will bless those who are in your circle of influence. And so today, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. I'm just going to ask you to follow me in prayer today. And like I said, maybe you're receiving Christ for the very first time. Maybe... There's just another special work that God is doing in your life right now. Follow me in prayer today. Father, thank you that you love me, that you call me with bands of love. I'm not fighting anymore. I'm choosing not to resist. I'm turning to you with all of my heart and all of my mind, and all of my soul, and all of my strength, and I'm trusting in Jesus, the only way to the Father. 
Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Wash me and cleanse me from my sin. And put your fire in my soul. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen. Praise God.